0: so that it can flow as well as possible. In just a moment, she'll come up and she will speak for about an hour. Um, please be respectful of her speaking and uh, do not see- seek to interrupt. If you find yourself disagreeing or perhaps wanting more clarification about something that she's said or not said, um, please, please, please try and formulate those thoughts into a question um, at which then you can bring that question during the second portion of the evening and ask it. During the Q&A time, as you'll see, there's a microphone set up right here in the middle. Um, we will have uh, Brandon Brister, who's sitting right there next to it, the uh, BCM campus minister, position there. Um, and just know that if at some point your question kind of morphs into more of a statement-y question, then um, Rosario will kind of uh, coach you through that a little bit. But um, she'll want to, you to ask the question. But if it ends up just being a statement, then um, you may be asked to sit down. We're not trying to be mean about that. We just want people to ask questions. Um, If you feel the need to kind of jump up and and be at the microphone very early on, then we would just ask that you sit down in the aisle so that people in the aisle or people on the sides aren't, um, you know, troubled by you standing right in their way. So we're glad you're here. It's now my pleasure to introduce uh, tonight's speaker, Dr. Rosaria Champagne-Butterfield taught English and Women's Studies at Syracuse University from 1992 to 2002, Receiving tenure in 1999, she published and taught in the fields of 19th century uh, British uh, literature and culture, feminist and queer theory, and psychoanalysis. After her conversion to Christ in 1999, she taught and ministered at Geneva College in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, and served there on their board of trustees. Rosaria is married to Kent Butterfield, who is the pastor of the First Reformed Presbyterian Church of Durham, North Carolina, And she now spends her days as a full-time homeschool mother, pastor's wife, writer, and speaker. In 2012, she published her conversion memoir called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English professor's journey to Christian faith. And then just this summer, she published her second book entitled Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ. A quick note, you'll see a book table up at the front. If you are a TU student... Uh, we want you afterwards, if you so desire, you're welcome to grab one of those two books. We have them both there. The one on this end is her first book uh, about her conversion story uh, coming to Christianity. The one on that far end is the one that was just come out uh, just come out this summer. Um, and then in the middle are stacks of Bibles. Anyone can take a Bible. If you are from the community uh, and you want one of those books, please consider leaving a donation. The cost to us is about $10. But if you're a student... We know you're poor, so by all means, just take them. <laughs> it's our gift to you as the, as the host tonight. So without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Rosaria Butterfield tonight.
1: How do I tell you about my conversion to Christ without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck. The truth be told, it felt a little of both. The language normally used to describe this odd miracle simply does not work for me. I did not read one of those tacky self-help books with a thin coating of Christian themes, examine my life against the tenets of the Bible, you know, the way one might hold up one car insurance policy, and cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ, While I did make choices along the path of this journey, they never felt logical, risk-free, or even sane. Neither did I feel like the victim of an emotional earthquake and collapse gracefully into the arms of my Savior like some holy and sanctified Scarlet O'Hara, having been claimed by Christ's irresistible grace. Heretical as it might seem, both Christ and Christianity seemed eminently resistible. My Christian life unfolded as I was just living my life, my normal life. In the normal course of life, questions emerged that exceeded my secular feminist worldview. Those questions remained dormant until I met a most unlikely friend, a Christian pastor. Had this pastor a neighbor not shared and lived the gospel with me for years and years, not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way, those questions might still be lodged in the crevices of my mind, and I might still not yet have met the most unlikely of friends, Jesus Christ himself. I had a normal childhood. Somehow I think it's just really important every time I open my mouth to just tell you that I was not dropped on my head as a small child that I know of. There's really nothing in the backstory. I had a normal childhood. I'm named after the rosary, Rosaria. I was raised in the Catholic faith, and I attended predominantly Catholic schools. My Catholic all-girl high school discipled me in the life skills that I use today. I learned there to read deeply and well to diagram a sentence before I dared try to interpret it. That's a good skill. (laughs) And to look out for the unloved and the unlovely and draw them in. I also had what I really believed was a heterosexual adolescence. In college, I met my first boyfriend, and it was a heady experience. And at the same time, an undercurrent of longing inserted itself into my intense friendships with women. I didn't make much of this at first. From the age of 22 until 28, I continued to date men and at the same time experience a sense of longing and connection that just toppled over the edges for my women friends. It took almost a decade of dating men for me to realize that I kept falling in love with women. The repetitious sensibility rooted and it grew I simply preferred the company of women. And in my late 20s, enhanced in part by feminist philosophy and LGBT political advocacy, my homosocial preference morphed into homosexuality. That shift was subtle, not startling. My lesbian identity and my love for my LGBT community developed in sync with my lesbian sexual practice. And life finally came together for me, and made sense. Once I met my first lesbian lover, I was hooked. I studied Freud. I cheered that the DSM had long since removed homosexuality from its list of disorders, thus rendering homosexuality in the eyes of the world and the academy normal. With no prohibitions or constraints, by the time I had graduated from The Ohio State University with my PhD in English Literature and Critical Theory, I left the Buckeye State with my first lesbian partner. We moved to New York for me to begin a tenure-track position in the English department at Syracuse University. My life as a lesbian seemed normal, sort of ho-hum normal. I considered it an enlightened chosen path. Lesbianism felt like a cleaner and a more moral sexual practice always preferring symmetry to asymmetry, I believed I had found my real self. What happened to my Catholic training? Well, I believed now that it was anti-intellectual and superstitious. The name Jesus, which had rolled off my tongue in a little girl's prayer, then rolled off my back in college, now made me recoil in anger. As a professor of English and women's studies, I tired of students who believed that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians seemed, you know those people, Christians seemed like bad readers to me, ironic given that they believed the Bible was the true truth. Christians use the Bible in a way that Marxists call vulgar, to end a conversation rather than to deepen it. But the most frustrating thing to me about Christians is that they simply would not leave consenting adults alone. I cared about morality and justice and compassion. As a 19th century scholar fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. And my life at this time was happy and meaningful and full. My next lesbian partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, Golden Retriever Rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, just to name a few. It was hard to argue that she and I were anything but good citizens and good caregivers. My friends and I never had a gay agenda, whatever that meant, and when Christians accused me of this, I would say, yeah, sure, my gay agenda involves really scary things like, say, feeding the poor, housing the homeless, and teaching reading to the illiterate. The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. And indeed, I honed the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my LGBT community. After my 10-year book was written, I began writing my next one on the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me. To do this, I began reading the Bible while looking out for some Bible scholar to help me wade through this complex book. I took note that the Bible was an engaging literary display of of literally every genre and trope and type. I mean, as an English major, this was just kind of new information to me. That was kind of cool. It had edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, and compelling narrative stories. But it also embodied a worldview that I hated. Sin, repentance, Sodom and Gomorrah? I thought that was totally absurd. At this time, the Christian men's movement, the Promise Keepers, came to town. And they parked their little circus at the university. On my war against stupidity, it's true, I wrote an op-ed piece and published it in the local newspaper. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. You just have to get through that stuff kind of quickly. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from Pastor Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was simply the kindest letter of opposition I've ever received. Ken did not argue with my article. Rather, he gently invited me to examine the presuppositions that undergirded it. In his letter, he shared his love for the Bible His concern that college students were not reading the Bible as part of a literature curriculum. And he described Jesus as someone who entered into history, not someone who emerged from it. That was bizarre. That was illogical to me. I believed that people proceed from history and are shaped for good or for ill by the culture that molds them. I didn't know how to respond to his letter, so I threw it away. In the recycling bin, of course. <laughs> Don't think I was a bad person. Later that night, I fished it out of the department's recycling bin and I put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week. It was confronting me with a worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview, but Christianity is a supernatural one. If I was going to understand how this book, the Bible, got so many people off track and how this man, Jesus, persuaded so many people to follow him, Ken's letter showed me that I needed to understand Christianity as a supernatural idea. At this point in my life, the category of the supernatural was almost exclusively reserved for Stephen King novels. And he was a very big donor to the English department at Syracuse University. So, so you may laugh, but we were encouraged to not bite the hand that feeds us. I was also deeply suspicious of both the motives and the worldview that Christians espoused. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who protested me and mocked me at gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved was going to hell, was as clear as the sky is blue. But Ken's letter did not mock. It engaged. And from his letter, Ken seemed palpably different from those Christians who hid behind placards at gay pride day. So when he invited me to dinner at his house to discuss these matters more fully, I trepiditiously accepted. My motives at the time were quite clear. Surely this at least would be good for my research. I mean, I was kind of curious, how do Christians live? What do they do behind closed doors? I'd never met a Christian before, much less been invited to his house for dinner. Well, something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floy, and I became friends They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics, and they did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had simply never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things— Ken's god was holy and firm yet full of mercy. And at my first meal at their home, Ken and Floy omitted two very important steps in the rule book of how Christians should deal like a heathen like me. These are rule this is the rule book that everybody reads. So, you know, I knew what they were supposed to do at the end of the meal. They didn't do it. Number 1, they did not share the gospel with me. Can you imagine they took the risk that I was going to get in my car and drive a mile home and and not get hit by a boat or a train or an airplane and it would all be their fault. They did. They took that risk. And number two, they did not invite me to church. I mean, what was I chopped liver? But because of these omissions to the Christian rule book, as I had come to know it, I knew that when that evening ended and Ken shook my hand It was safe to enclose my hand in his. You see, I was not Ken's project. I was Ken's neighbor. This was not friendship evangelism, this was friendship. That letter that Ken wrote to me initiated two years of his bringing the church to me. I started meeting with Ken and Floy regularly, reading the Bible in earnest with pen in hand and notebook in lap. At the same time, I met a man in the Smith House who had also had a long history of the same kind of sexual sin that I did, but he had become a follower of this God-man Jesus. He encouraged me to dig deeply into the Bible I started to read the Bible simply the way I was trained to read a book. See, go figure. I was not raised in the church. I didn't go to VBS. I didn't know you're supposed to, like, play roulette with it, find a verse a day like it's your horoscope, and (laughs) carry it around like a mantra. So I, I actually just, like, just read it like a book. You know, there you go. I started to read the Bible the way I was trained to, examining its textual authority, authorship, canonicity, and internal hermeneutics. Um, I'm a professor of English, and I'm a what's called a whole book scholar. So basically, my job is to size up a book and understand how it's put together, understand all of its parts. I read the way a glutton devours. Slowly and over time, the Bible started to take on a life and a meaning that startled me. Some of my well-worn paradigms no longer stuck. And I had to at least ponder the hermeneutical claim that this book was different from all the others because it was inspired by a holy God and inherently true and trustworthy. This led me to go through the presuppositional truth claims, just to check the math of the meaning here. And the logic claims go like this. Number one, if this was a book written by men who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, then its admonitions about sin were not applied cultural phobia. Indeed, prior to reading the Bible for myself, I believed the category of sin was merely that, applied cultural phobia. But if God is good, then his goodness is unrestrained by time, and it anticipates and guards against the ill-treatment of people. I noticed as I read the Bible that its admonitions about sin were followed by offers of grace. Boy, nobody ever put that on a placard at a gay pride march, let me tell you. It struck me as odd. The God of the Bible deals differently with people when people deal differently with Him. And number two, if God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has His seal of truth and power, then the Bible had the right to interrogate my life and my culture, and not the other way around. You see, even as a postmodern reader, I understood the idea that authority can only depend upon that which is higher than itself. I was a professor, after all. If your paper was due on Friday and you didn't give it to me until the following Monday, it just wasn't going to go very well for you. I mean, you were probably a nicer person than I am. It had nothing to do with you being a nice person. It had had everything to do with our role. And that led me to wonder, who is higher than God? My friends knew I was reading the Bible. It was at this point a research project. First the dean of the chapel took me out to lunch and shared his belief that the Old Testament was dispensable and with it any prohibition about sexuality and immorality. In fact he's the first one who said Rosaria you just don't have to give up your girlfriend to have Jesus. You just don't have to do that. We don't read the Bible like that anymore. We don't need to. It's not true. But the problem is I had been reading and studying the three different narratives in the Old Testament, the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law. And it seemed to me that you couldn't dispense with the entire Old Testament without violating a rule about canonicity, no creating canons within canons, and ignoring what the book of Acts says about these matters. In fact, I had just gone over the canonicity rule in my graduate seminar in queer theory, and it made me wonder if the chapel dean ought not sit in on my class, just so that we could be on the same page about this. In my reading, I had been studying the book of Acts, and in chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council confirmed that the moral law of God was to continue throughout all time as God's clear command. At the same time, Acts 10, verses 9 through 16, made clear that the ceremonial law was no longer binding, and hence the wearing of wool and cotton no longer, for example, violated God's law. So these are two different things. And the chapel dean's position required ignoring these important passages in the New Testament. And it seemed to me that that was simply a hermeneutic of convenience, conforming the text to fit my experience and not a hermeneutic of integrity, where the text gets the chance to fulfill its mission. You see, even a postmodern reader-response critic like myself knows that each text has a kind of internal mission. And the internal mission of the Bible is to transform the nature of humanity, which means everyone, men, women, queer-identifying people, and straight identifying people. The internal mission of the Bible is to change the nature of everybody. And that is why everybody knows it's a dangerous text. I was puzzled that the Chapel dean seemed to have such little understanding of a book that he had studied longer than I had. But next, at a dinner part at a dinner party that my partner and I were hosting, my transgender friend Jill cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine and said, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you. I felt exposed. She was right. She always was. But what if it's true, I asked. What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Jill exhaled deeply and sat down in the chair across from mine. Her eyes looked wise, and she said, Rosaria... I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you'd like, I'll pray for you. This encounter gave me secret, tacit permission to keep reading the Bible. My dear friend Jill had also read it cover to cover many times, had rooted around in its deep crevices for life purpose and help. But the bomb she dropped simply enraged me. Who is this Jesus who heals some, but not others? No social justice activist wants some unequal opportunity, God. Who needs that? And at the same time, something deep inside me recoiled at the word heal. I didn't need healing. I believed that gay is good. And was not in need of healing. And even the Bible didn't say I needed healing. The Bible said I needed to repent of my sin. Well, I didn't like either of these terms. So I rejected both the idea that I needed healing and the idea I needed saving from my sin. The next day, when I returned home from work, I found two large milk crates spilling over with theological books, Jill's books from seminary. She was giving them to me. In Calvin's Institutes, in Jill's handwriting was a warning. Watch Romans 1. Romans 1, 21 through 27. Now, I had read the Bible a couple of times through at this point, but somehow I just kind of skipped over this. But you know how your friend's marginalia is in a book? You probably don't, because everybody's in a Kindle today. But back in the old days, people had books, and they would write things in the margins. And that's how you would know how you connected with the ideas of your friends. Well, I opened the book to where Jill's handwriting guided me, and this is what it said. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculation And their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. I found the verb clauses here to be particularly arresting. Did not honor God, did not give thanks, engaged in futile speculations, became fools, exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible. God gives us over to our lusts and when we look at the world through our lusts, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and dishonor our bodies and worship the world. These verses seem to provide a haunting literary echo to Genesis 3, where Eve's desire to live independently of God's authority made perfect sense to me. If I were Eve, I would have done the same thing, and at the same time, this Seemingly innocent sin, attributed to Adam, interestingly enough, because of his headship, served as the leverage for the whole world to come tumbling down, fierce and fast, bloody and brilliant. You know, if you're reading the Bible about five hours a day, which I was doing at this point, it is amazing how quickly, how quickly right after the sin of Adam and Eve, the world becomes a bloodbath. I mean, if you're only reading a verse a day, you can't feel the momentum of that that part of the Bible. These two biblical frames, one in Genesis and one in Romans, stood out as bookends of my life. Not just my life, that's the rub. If the Bible is, as its internal testimony purports, an eternal frame relevant for and responding to the needs of all humanity, then Genesis 3 and Romans 1 stood out as the table of contents of what ails the world. Indeed, Romans 1 does not end by highlighting same-sex sexual expression as a discrete and separate matter in the way that we discuss it today. Instead, this passage finds its crescendo in how one sin, homosexuality in this case, seems to morph into other sins while finding its impetus in original sin. Quote, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This last line grabbed me by the throat. It told me that if we cannot receive a blessing from God, we will demand it from man. As the faculty advisor to many LGBT student groups on campus, this cut me to the core. But I also took note of the theological diagnosis homosexuality in the bible is not the end point of the problem not for god or for the world homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin but it is presented here as one step in the journey away from god's blessing and protection homosexuality then seemed consequential not causal homosexuality from god's point of view is an identity-rooted ethical outworking of this original sin Therefore, it seems solidly biblical to say that, indeed, we were born this way. Because, truth be told, we are all born distorted by original sin in one way or another. But by failing to rigorously relinquish my identity to God's story and failing to understand that the fall rendered even my deepest, most primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue, I had added to my ledger of original sin by creating for myself a category of personhood that God did not. God has one category of personhood. We are male and female image bearers of a holy God. And that image has been distorted by original sin for us all. Indeed, there are ethical restraints and responsibilities to being born male and female. And to having a soul that will last forever. I had taught, studied, read, and lived a very different notion of homosexuality. And for the first time in my life, I wondered if I was wrong. This stopped me in my tracks. Somehow it was easier to hate the Bible when it squared off against me. But now that it was getting under my skin, it became a foe of a different and more menacing kind. This was when the research project stopped. This was no longer a research project. I had answered my questions about the Bible. The Bible stood up to my accusations and I didn't like the answers at all. And so I tried to toss the Bible and its teachings in the trash. I really tried. But Ken encouraged me to keep reading. He was my friend by now. And only because I trusted him Did I do so? As I read and reread the Bible, I kept catching my wings in its daily embrace. I was fighting the idea that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, that the biblical authors were moved by the Holy Spirit to record the word of God, that the Bible is true, completely true, and without error, that its meaning and purpose has a holy and supernatural authority that has protected it over the years of its canonicity, and that it is the repository of truth. How could a smart cookie like me even start to embrace such things? I didn't even believe in truth. I was a postmodernist. I believed in truth claims. I believed that the reader constructed the text, that a text's meaning found its power only in the reader's interpretation of it. Without a reader, a book is just paper and glue, I told my students over and over again. How dare... This one book lay claim to a birthright and a progeny totally different from all the others. That this book was supernatural was becoming more and more evident to me, and my hermeneutical bag of tricks had no system of containment for it. As I was reading and discussing these things with Ken, he pointed out to me that Jesus is the word made flesh. And that knowing Jesus demands embracing the Jesus of the Bible, the whole Bible, not the Jesus of my imagination, even the places that took my life captive. And after years and years of this, and going through the Bible about seven times, the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world, and I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I first met Ken and Floy, and two years after I started reading the Bible for my research, I left the bed that I shared with my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. You see, you never know the complicated path that people take to worship the living God. Conspicuous of my appearance, I reminded myself that I came there to meet God, not to fit in. The first sermon that I heard Ken preach was intended for children. I thought, this is good. This is just my speed. (laughs) This was a good day to come. Ken started to talk about the narrow gate and the wide gate. And immediately my mind just started to drift away. I didn't get much of the sermon. I kept thinking about last year's Gay Pride March, wide as it was, with people just like me. People who made me feel safe and loved. And people that I valued as family. I kept going back to church to hear more sermons. I had made friendships with people in the church at this time, and I appreciated the way that they talked about the sermons throughout the week, how the Word of God dwelt in them, and how they referenced it in the details of their days. They would even use direct quotations to do this. That was peculiar. You see, English professors by training love cross-referencing, especially the use of direct quotations. But I muddled over this in my mind. Cross-referencing the Bible with your life places you inside God's story, inside God's ontology. Is it safe? Is it deadly? I sure knew it would not not go so well for me. I wasn't going to try that at home. And I pondered these matters. One thing that was troubling to me is that so many of my new Christian friends got something that I was missing. Now, I was used to being a good reader and quick to understand things. But even though I had read the Bible through multiple times, there was something key that I was just obviously missing that these other people were getting. And truly, I was not used to being the person who lacked understanding. But here it was. I had to face it. I just lacked understanding. Ken was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew with its bewildering cast of characters and problems, unsuspecting folks separated unto the Gospel, seeds choked by the world, feeding thousands with some poor and nameless kids, bread and fish. I always felt so sorry for that poor guy. I really did. No name at all. And then Jesus' cutting question to impetuous Peter Do you still lack understanding? Well, one Lord's Day, Pastor Ken just stopped right there. I mean, he just stopped and stared at us. I thought, what's going on? Is that old guy having a heart attack? I mean, he just stopped. It was bizarre. He turned his steel blue eyes on the congregation. He held us in this agonizingly long pause. And then he said, congregation, did Christ ever say this to you? Do you still lack understanding? Well, this was my question. This was the question, remember, I had been asking myself. And for a split second before I could just shove this feeling down as fast as I could, I wondered, who is talking here? That old man behind the pulpit or the God man behind the creation And the redemption of his people. You see, there is something about the hermeneutic of preaching that really disarmed me. And truth be told, it still does. And the image that crashed like waves in a raging sea of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. Not because we called ourselves gay, but because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous. We rejected the Bible's interpretive authority over our sexuality, our sexual identity, and our sexual practice. It was our hearts and minds first. Our bodies and identities followed. I got it. I heard it. Finally. Counted the costs, and I still did not like the math. This was my crucible, and this is my crucible. If the Bible is true, I was dead. And if the Bible is false, I'm the biggest fool on earth. But God's promises rolled in like another round of waves into my world. And one Lord's Day, God, John, I'm sorry, Ken, was preaching on John seven seventeen. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them and tell you what to think about them. And I expected that in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience, not the other way around. I mean, how in the world do you translate Virgil if you don't know Latin first, people? This was so counterintuitive, so obnoxious, I did not like it. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. Perhaps I thought like Eve in the garden. I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. I wondered, hadn't I done this already? Hadn't we all? If my consciousness fell in Adam's sin, as the Bible purports, no wonder I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. This wasn't a game of thinking and of matching of wits. Here is the question. Could my heart echo God's call for obedience Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so very high, because they always are. But the verse promised understanding after obedience, and I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood Starting with my own sexuality was too scary, too impossible. So I started with Jesus. I prayed that God would be pleased to reveal his son in me. I prayed that I would be a vessel of Jesus. And then I moved to gender. I don't know why, but I had a driving, somewhat oxymoronic desire to make biblical sense of my place in the world as a woman defined and covered by God. And so I prayed that God would make me a godly woman, and then I laughed out loud in my unbelief at the total insanity of that prayer. I prayed that God would give me the faith to repent of my sin at its root. What is the root of my sin, I wondered. I did not then, and I do not now, think that homosexuality was the root of my sin. I mean, according to the Bible, homosexuality is a fruit of a larger issue. Remember Romans 1, it's an ethical outworking of a state of mind and a practical outworking of original sin. And so I left my first night of prayer simply pondering this. Could original sin be for real? I mean, I was an English professor. I taught creation myths, right? It's a myth. It's a joke. But could it really be for real? And could it distort me like this? Is my sexual love for women a reflection of the real me or a distortion of it through original sin? How does one repent of a sin that doesn't feel like sin at all, but a normal, not-bothering-another-soul kind of life? How would I come to this place? What is the root of the sin of sexual identity? Is it the sex or the identity or both? I was a jumble of emotions, but I prayed that the Lord would help me to see my life from his point of view. And the next morning, when I looked in the mirror, I looked exactly the same. But when I looked in the mirror of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian? Am I an atheist? Am I the master of my own destiny? Am I exempt from blame because what I do in bed is self-contained? and does not affect anyone but my lover? Or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul and the spirit, judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, could he make my true identity prevail? Who who am I? Who will God have me to be? I still felt like a lesbian in my body and heart. That was, I felt my real identity. But what is my true identity? The Bible makes clear that the real and the true have a troubled relationship this side of eternity. For many people in the Bible, their true identity and calling comes only after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, and with dreams and hopes and plans dashed and destroyed. The Bible makes clear that my future and my calling will always echo an attribute of God. Obedience constrains. It always mirrors suffering, as every selection implies a sacrifice. What is bigger, my lesbian identity or God's authority over me and holy sovereignty over the world? Who is this Jesus? Did I know him? Did I still lack understanding? Could I trust him? And then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. We were singing from Psalm 119, line 56, This is mine, because forever all thy precepts I preserve. After I sang these words, I checked them in the Bible. And the Bible used a helping verb and noted the verse like this, This has become mine. Something about that helping verb made something shift in me. Two weight-bearing walls collapsed in my mind. The first wall came crashing down because I had just sung condemnation unto myself and I was actually in tune enough with the Holy Spirit to feel his convicting rebuke. This Bible was not mine. I had scorned it and cursed it and despised it and taught thousands of college students to do the same. But I had been reading and rereading this book and the use of that helping verb here, has and has become, really troubled me. Two years of laborious reading embodies the helping verb has. It showed process, journey, pilgrimage, and danger. But I was not in Christ and therefore could not possibly keep these precepts, God's law, not in word, heart change, or deed. And here was the shattering of the second wall. I had read the Bible many times through, And I saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. I heard for myself that when the phrase, this is mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing, I was attesting to this one simple truth, that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required this wrestling with scripture. And that I truly wanted to both hear God's voice breathed into my life, and I wanted God to hear my pleas. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle, was my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. As an advocate for peace and social justice, I thought I was on the side of love, kindness, integrity, diversity, human flourishing, and compassion. It was thus a crushing revelation to discover it. It was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. Not just some historical figure named Jesus, but My Jesus, my prophet, my king, my savior, my redeemer, my friend, that Jesus. Of course, there's only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sins. I started with pride. My life was filled with pride. So I repented of pride. The pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules for faith and life and sexual autonomy. The pride that said I was entitled to live separately from God and from His law. The pride that led me to believe that self esteem and self worth was self invented. Repentance is bittersweet business. Repentance is not just a conversion exercise, it is the posture of a Christian. Repentance is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute by minute wake up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus' blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Repentance is the only no shame solution to a renewed Christian life because it proves only the obvious that God was right all along. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything I had to gain Christ, but I had to. Softly, the voice of God sang a sanguine love song into the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank from the means of grace that God provides, Bible reading, prayer, psalm singing, fellowship of the saints, and then later church membership and the Lord's Supper. I took respite and private peace, and then Christian community. God radically changes people from the heart, and the proof of conversion is a heart changed by Jesus. We do not look to ourselves to see if we measure up. We do not use our personal feelings as proof of gospel life. We do not look to ourselves because we don't measure up. Jesus measures up for us, and that's the point. Well, what about homosexuality? Did I ever get that special insight from the Holy Spirit as to why it is a sin? I never never got that email, folks. Did I ever feel that unnaturalness that Romans 1 outlines? No. That's just not what happened. The sinfulness of my sin unfolded for me in the authority of the Bible alone. The growing sweetness of my union with Christ and the sanctification that this births. You see, at a certain point in my life, I knew I had to turn the wheel over to God, a little like an Alzheimer's patient who in a flashing moment of mental lucidity signs over his rights to his able-minded caregiver, a believer signs over his rights of interpretation to the God of the Bible. I learned in that crucible that I was not to love or cherish anything that God called sin, even if my flesh still craved it. Psalm 66, 18 puts it this way If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The verb to note is cherished. When we cherish sin, we are separated from a holy God. When you defend your right to a particular sin, you are cherishing it. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 declares this Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. When we cherish sin, we build a wall between us and our maker. We are deceived to believe that our sin is not a sin. We call God a liar, and we use our personal feelings as proof. And all our personal feelings prove is that original sin and the deceptiveness of sin are inseparable. As First 1 John 1.10 puts it, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Indeed, the Bible declares homosexuality to be a sin. But so too, I believe, is homophobia. Homophobia is the fear and loathing of people who identify as LGBT and the wholesale writing off of their souls. But that still leaves the question unanswered. What is the sin of homosexuality? The feeling? The practice? For me, the root of my lesbianism was pride. I did not want any man to have any authority over my body. Before I was a follower of Christ, I had believed that both gender and sexuality were social constructs, definable and malleable by the intent of the person who bears them. But I came to believe that denying the ethical restraints and responsibilities of being born male and female image bearers of a holy God is sin. For others, the root of their homosexuality may be sexual addiction or lust. And some sins are harder to battle than others. But for God, when we call sin, sin and repent of it, we honor God's authority. Getting to a posture of repentance is really its own battle as the flesh cries out for the forbidden object while the heart and mind owned by Jesus beg for deliverance. And Christ is for us in this battle because repentance is the threshold to God. For those in this room who experience same-sex desires, this can be hard, this can be a heavy cross to bear, And I get it. I also know that if you are in Christ, Jesus will carry the heavier part of this burden. Crosses are not curses. But please, to the Christians who do not experience gay or lesbian desires, do not add unbearable weight to this burden by thinking that the sin of homosexual practice is somehow different from all the others or that its solution is heterosexuality. The solution to all sin is Christ's atoning blood. In Christ, we are new creatures. In Christ, we have a new will, heart, and affections for God's word and his will. We are redeemed men and women who have been buried with Christ through baptism into death. And we are no longer slaves to the sin that once defined us, although likely it still knows our names and addresses. Much of my struggle with the indwelling sin of homosexuality was in figuring out its expanse and deciding whether I was going to agree with God's vocabulary and God's dictionary or argue instead for my own. Was my lesbian desire a reflection of who I am or a distortion of it? Was original sin for real? If my lesbian feelings never went away, did that mean that God did not hear my prayer or love me? is the gospel of Jesus Christ a bad deal for people who have gay or lesbian desires? And is it such a bad deal that we need to start chopping up the Bible and only preaching half of it or a quarter of it or the red letters or not even all the red letters? This was not an easier or linear process. At a certain point in my journey, I realized that the promises of sexual fulfillment on my own terms were the antithesis of what I had once fervently believed. Instead of liberty, my sexual sin had now become enslavement. And then one day, my lesbian desires and sensibilities became for me a dead end. I saw it starkly, beholding my sexual sin from God's point of view, both my heterosexual and homosexual sin, was startling. Psalm 73:22 describes the situation like this. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Today I stand in a long line of godly women. That would be the Mary Magdalene line. It's a long one, longer than the church might like to like to believe. The gospel came with grace, but it demanded irreconcilable war. And somewhere in this complex process, my fledgling desire to become a godly woman, covered by God, hedged in by his word and will, bled into another one, to become, if the Lord willed, the godly wife of a godly husband. And then I noticed it. Union with the risen Christ meant that everything else was nailed to the cross. I couldn't get my former life back if I wanted it. At first, this was terrifying. I I felt like I imagine an amputee feels. But when I peered deep into the abyss of my terror, I found this, peace. With peace, I learned that the gospel is always ahead of you. Home is forward. So what does a person like me do with her past? I have not forgotten the flowing contours of my past. Body memories know my name. Details intrude into my world unpredictably, like when I'm homeschooling my children or kneading the communion bread that I make every week. I take each ancient token to the cross for prayer, for more repentance, for thanksgiving, and for appreciation that God is simply always right about matters of sin and grace. I think about what it means to live within the story of the Bible and how repentance is a fruit of my new life in Christ. And Paul's question in Romans Romans 6.21 is one I ask myself. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? The layers of my life in Christ always unfold in a double-directional way. One step forward. One step back. I've come to understand that this is part of what it means to live on this side of the new Jerusalem. It makes me long for my eternal home. You see, God saved me, but he didn't lobotomize me. But bigger than this, I've not forgotten the blood that Jesus surrendered for this life, where gospel faith paves the path of my yearning, questions, doubts, and fears. Where all aspects of my life, even the afflictions, trials, and tragedies, have meaning, purpose, and grace. Jesus gives us joy as the strongholds of sin are torn down when we live in the grace of obedience. In Jesus, suffering is redemptive, and this includes the suffering that occurs when Christ gives us the faith to choose him over ourselves. In Jesus, joy in the Lord resides. In Jesus, we start to spread our new creatures' wings. In Jesus, no matter what the sin of our past, if we confess and repent it, calling sin what God calls sin, a transgression against him, and an attack against his character and law, we stand in the risen Christ, hidden with God forever. As daughters and sons of God wrapped in robes of righteousness, even though we may struggle with many temptations and indwelling sin patterns over the course of this journey, when we live as Galatians 2.20 people, crucified people, we hear God's voice saying this to us, This is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Nothing me affords this robe. This is alien righteousness, grace alone by faith alone. But after the 2015 Supreme Court decision making gay marriage a constitutional right, here is the question I am repeatedly asked. Why did I have to give up my girlfriend for Christ? Why couldn't I have both? Can't someone believe in Jesus and be gay? Aren't I, after all, on the wrong side of history? Aren't I now a dangerous bigot whose references to the Bible ought to be silenced and condemned as a form of hate speech? Those are all questions I've been asked. So let's unpack this. Can someone experience and resist unwanted homosexual desire and be a faithful believer and follower of Christ? Yes, of course. Two, Can someone unrelentingly embrace same-sex sexual expression, deny that it is a sin, allow it to root and flourish as either a personal identity, um, a kind of non-moral love, um, a sexual practice, and then add Jesus to this and call this Christian faith? No. Why not? Isn't all love good? Isn't all love unconditional? Well, Because the God who made you and takes care of you sets the terms of what selfhood means. Submitting to the God who made me required a radically different understanding of both the nature of men and women and the nature of sin. You see, according to the Bible, our identity is either in Adam or in Christ, and that is why Romans 8:13 calls us to put away sin. John Owen puts it this way. He says, "Grace changes the nature of man, but nothing can change the nature of sin. Nothing. Nothing can change the nature of sin, and that is why we must flee from it." You see sin is not only an enemy Because enemies can and often are reconciled. And we praise God when that happens. But sin is not just an enemy. Sin is called in the Bible enmity. And enmity against God cannot be reconciled. Because the nature of sin is a churning hostility against God. No matter how good it feels. People of God. Sin always feels good. That's the point. If your sin doesn't feel good, you're not doing it right. (laughs) You might need a coach. It always feels good. That's why it's a problem. It is for this reason that the Bible calls all Christians to die to self. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Bible offers a completely different notion of personhood than the one embedded in the recent SCOTUS decision, making gay marriage a constitutional right, by extending the 14th Amendment to include the category of sexual orientation. You see, the Supreme Court decision relies upon a category of personhood That is simply not found in the Bible. The Bible never called people who identify as gay or lesbian abominations. Never. What is abominable to God is any sinful act or practice. Not ever made in the image of God persons. Ever. People are precious to God. Each and every one. But sexual orientation as a category of personhood asserts that people are categorized by their erotic objects of desire and the concomitant emotional and psychological realities that emerge from it. That is, sexual orientation as a category of personhood claims that people who identify as lesbian or gay, bisexual or straight are all separate categories of people, separate subcategories of humanity. This cheapens the glorious and godly definition of personhood for everyone, for people who identify as queer and for people who identify as straight. We are and always will be bigger and more valuable than our sexual orientation. The concept of sexual orientation was first used by Sigmund Freud in the 19th century, and it defined humanity according to sexual desires And segregated humanity according to its gendered object. By so doing, the biblical concept of personhood, being made in the image of God and being made male or female with an eternal soul, was replaced by a new category invention sexual identity. Sexual orientation is a word that extends the definition of sexuality beyond its logical confines. Biblically speaking, sexuality is teleological. But the category of sexual orientation moved sexuality from a verb or practice to a noun, a person. And with this grammatical move, a new concept of personhood was born. The idea that we are oriented or framed according to our sexual desires, and that our different sexual desires and different objects of desire make us different subcategories of people. And that self-representation, now rooted in sexual orientation, not soul orientation, or the purposes of God for his image bearers. Now, it's interesting, this isn't just a, um, this is not actually originally a Christian perspective. In fact, the first person to really make mention of this is Michel Foucault, the famous gay-identifying French historian of ideas who tragically died of AIDS in 1980. He is the one who pointed out that for the first time in the history of ideas in the 19th century, quote, homosexuality appeared as one of the forms of sexuality when it was transposed from the practice of sodomy into a kind of interior androgyny, a hermaphroditism of the soul. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration. In the 19th century, the homosexual was a new Species, quote, unquote. That's from the History of Sexuality, Volume 1. Prior to the 19th century category invention of sexual orientation as a frame for personhood, absolutely no one's sexual practice or sexual desire would have told you what kind of person that person was. It was this category mistake of sexual orientation that actually created the societal structure of homophobia allowing society at large to dismiss or demonize our brothers and sisters with same-sex sexual desires as a separate category of people. And it is now used to suggest that sexual orientation is a fixed category of personhood, analogous to race. Like most categories of personhood invented by people and not sanctified by God, sexual orientation is a category that is fickle, unstable, and fails to apprehend and defend the the full beauty of humanity, where human flourishing cannot be wrenched from soul-bearing and image-bearing of God. So the question is, where do you stand? You see, you cannot find your identity in your sexual orientation and the triune God at the same time. These are competing definitions of what make us human replete with different anthropologies of personhood. It helps to remember, at this point in any discussion, that the gospel is for us. It is for all of us who bend the knee to Christ. It is for those of us who experience same-sex sexual desires and for those of us who face other temptations. God's grace for us in Christ is sufficient for all of our various struggles and sins. The question of identity speaks to the heart of authentic Christianity, which is, at its base, a call to die. That's right. That's what the Christian faith is. It's a call to die. The Christian life is a call to carry a cross and then to die to self, inheriting eternal life of a beauty and a magnitude that makes up for every sacrifice and loss that this world demands. There is simply no route to heaven except through suffering and loss. And what the psalmist in Psalm 23 calls the valley of the shadow of death. When God changes the heart of a person and gives him or her the ability to follow Christ, this new believer gains a world that she did not know existed. God gives all who will submit to Christ Something called union with Christ. A dynamic friendship that is imminent, Ephesians 1.4, from before the foundations of the world. Transient, Romans 6.3-11, joining the believer to Christ's death and resurrection and shaping identity that emerges from it. And applicatory, living with the kind company of the indwelling Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is union with Christ that fuels our daily battle against the original sin that distorts us, the actual sin that distracts us, and the indwelling sin that manipulates us. But make no mistake, this is spiritual battle. And in this conflict between what we want and what God wants for us, we learn that our identity cannot be rooted in something that God calls sin, even if we love it and have known it, As our earliest language. Identity can only be rooted in what God has done and what God is doing. And in addition to all of the spiritual gifts given to the believer, the believer is also promised a new family in the church. To those who have a Bible with them in this room, please turn to Mark ten twenty eight to thirty one. Then Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake or for the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Please note what Jesus says here. He says that when you come to him, you will give up everything. He says that. And he also says... He also says much here about how to love anyone who responds to the gospel in faith and obedience and who must lose everything in order to gain the kingdom's promises. Jesus says that he expects that we will lose partners and children and houses in the process of conversion. That conversion will call everyone to lose everything. And Jesus says that your new brothers and sisters in Christ will be your family and that you will receive 100 times from them what you put on the altar in obedience. I believe the church needs to wake up here and see this. You see, too often the church has looked at singles in our, in our church as people who need to be fixed or fixed up. Too often the church has just been a kind of gathering place from Sunday morning from 10 to 12 with no real sense of family. And you know, the conflict that preceded my coming to speak to you tonight says a lot about this passage. I don't happen to believe that the conflict that I have with some of you in this room is a conflict between right and wrong. I believe we are having a conflict between right and right. You see... My protesters are right to want a safe space to learn and to be. They're right. And God is right to have given us a Bible that is completely pure and perfect and true and that lays out exactly how to procure eternal safety, respect, and value. Those of us in this audience who are from historic Bible-believing Christian churches, I wonder if you are listening. I wonder if you have thought that maybe you are not perhaps part of the problem. Have you only been sharing half of the gospel? Are you willing to share the gospel and offer with it a house key? That's what Mark 10 tells you to do. Are you ready to open your homes and your hearts to your brothers and sisters who have left everything and the LGBT community? And if not, why not? You see, from whom will this blessing of a new family come? It's not going to drop down from the sky. Where does this hundred times blessing come, if not from the body of Christ, from the church? If you know that the gospel costs everything and is worth it, then God intends this blessing to come through you. Well, tonight I have shared a portion of my life. My life is neither diagnostic nor proscriptive, but the life of Jesus Christ is both. In the life I live now in Christ, hospitality reflects one of my greatest joys, but on occasion I get on a plane and come and speak to you, and so I really don't have much to offer you by way of hospitality except for words. My words are my way of setting a table for you. And so I'm going to stop talking now and open this up for your questions. And I um, appreciate your attention. This was a long lecture. Thank you.